Paul uh, answering two questions. So if you have your bulletin, they're actually in the bulletin. If not, you can, you can just write it down on your device. We're just looking. This is just for you, and you can just write one or two word answers. The first question is this. Um, whether, you're at, whether you attend here at DCC or some other place, what are the top three things you want to see happen in your church this year. And if you're just checking out church for the first time and you're just getting started, then, you know, I don't know, you can just kind of kind of wait through this part. But what are the top three things you'd like to happen either at DCC or whatever church you attend? <clears throat> it's so quiet right now. There we go. We got some background noise over there. Thank you, whoever that was. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> uh, next question. Um, I know that we're two months away from January 1st almost, but um, if you can remember your New Year's resolutions or your goals for the, for the, the year so far, what would be your number one goal? If you had to say, this is my number one goal, what is it? Again, you're just, you're just writing something so you can remember, just one or two words for 2016. Okay, let's get started this morning. Um, uh, if, it's just kind of by coincidence. Um, I preached on a passage in November um, in Luke nine fifty one, And at that particular week, we were talking about the fact that, that in that passage, Luke nine fifty one, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And we talked about the fact that the scholars call the next 10 chapters the travel narratives because Jesus is kind of making this convoluted trip from where he was over to Jerusalem and he is teaching about the cost of discipleship and Luke is recording all the things that he has said. And we said that when we got to verse 1928, that's kind of where he has arrived now. And so we're going to pick up with 1928 this morning. Jesus is now going to go into Jerusalem, and it is Palm Sunday. We have to pick the story apart from all the different Gospels. We know, it, from what we can tell, he was staying at the house of his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, the gentleman he raised from the dead. And so now he is going to go into Jerusalem, and this is a key point. He is going to ascend up. Uh, the Mount of Olives, and then he is going to go down and look across the Kidron Valley to the city of Jerusalem. The city is absolutely a buzz. Um, first of all, it's already an emotionally charged time because this is the Passover week. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews will be showing up in Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of lambs will be slain. They are celebrating the Passover angel who when there was blood over their door, passed over their house. And if you remember the story, they kill, he killed the firstborn child in the Egyptian's home, which allowed the Israelites 
to go free, got them out of slavery. So they're celebrating the Passover lamb or the Passover angel and the lamb that was used to put blood over the door. Freedom from slavery. But now as emotionally charged as that should be, they're also under the Roman thumb. Um, The Roman Empire was brutal and they were keeping them under wraps again. And so basically they were back under a slavery almost, if you want to call that. On top of that now, when you look at the sentence structures, people were whispering, you know, do you think he's going to show up? But kind of in a negative way, like, you know, you don't really think he's going to show up. I mean, we already know that the Pharisees had said, hey, if you know where he is, we want you to tell us. They wanted to kill Jesus. And so now Jesus starts his trip into Jerusalem. He is going to go riding right into battle. They all think, oh, this is perfect. We're going to get to kill Jesus. And he's basically giving himself to them so that his purpose can be carried out. So all along this parade route leading from Bethany, you've got people that are just curiosity seekers. They're wanting to see Lazarus, the freak show. Can you imagine? Now, he's probably traveling along, and here's a guy that's been raised from the dead. They put up a price on poor Lazarus' head. They want him dead, too. And, you know, when you think of it, it's kind of comical. Jesus raised him once, so if the Pharisees kill him, he's just going to go, nah, 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 get back up, Lazarus, you know, and he can just go back and forth. And at the same time, then you've got people who are thinking, you know, we want to see miracles. And then you've got the people who really, truly think that he is the Messiah. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's unarmed, but with his miraculous powers, he is going to be able to overthrow the Roman government. But see, they've missed it. They've missed the kingdom that he's talking about having. And so we pick up in verse 28, and when we look at that, what we see is Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go ahead, and in a village on up ahead, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. So they went on ahead and found it, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So you read that, and you're just like, well, that's not that big a deal. He's riding a donkey. But this is a huge part right here. This is the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy that was issued about 500 years early by the prophet Zechariah in, in 9.9. It, it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of, Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Now, hear the specificity of this. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So now, if you've ever worked with horses or donkeys, whatever, you just can't just jump on their back for the first time and take off. You have to break them. But this is the first time. This is for our Lord Jesus. He wants a special animal. And this foal submits to his lordship. Also, the symbolism there is that Jewish royalty during peacetime would ride into town on a donkey. It was the peace mount. If they were going to war, of course, they would ride a horse. So you've got the king of peace here coming riding on a donkey. 
So it says that as he went along the way, they threw their cloaks on the, on the road. And, and this was, again, a symbolism of respect. They didn't want the king's uh, donkey's hooves to even touch the dirt. And then they would be raising palm branches, which were uh, waving palm branches, because that was a sign of victory. And these people thought Jesus is going to ride in there and he's going to save us. Then they were also shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And again, this is, again, a fulfillment of a prophecy written centuries before in Psalm 118, 26. So we start to see all these things coming into play. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You see, the the Pharisees were really starting to freak out now because they were really losing their power base. John 12, 19 says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting out of hand, is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. I mean, Jesus is just rocking Jerusalem right now. And so the way I see this, you know, he's made his way up, and now he's going to go down over the other side. And he looks across the Kidron Valley, and he sees Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. When you look at the sentence or the word study of this word wept, it's not just some tears coming out of his eyes. It would have been a sobbing, a loud wailing, a deep mourning. And Jesus says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The Jews did not get it. They didn't see Jesus. Wearsby writes, as Jesus looked ahead, he wept as he saw the terrible judgment that was going to come on the nation, the city, and the temple. In A.D. 70, the Romans would come, and after a siege of 143 days, they would kill 600,000 Jews, take thousands more captive and then destroy the temple and the city. And why did all this happen? Because the people did not know that God had visited them. John 1.11 tells us, He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. In the parable of the miner, minas, right before uh, this passage today, Jesus even works it in that we will not have this man reign over him. You see, in spite of all the miracles and in spite of all the prophecies and all his spellbinding, spellbinding teaching, they still missed why he came. And he wept because he saw the destruction coming. So we know that, again, looking at all the Gospels, that Jesus went back to Bethany, and then on the next day he went into Jerusalem again on Monday. And... We pick up verse 47 where he says, uh, well, verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those that were selling. It is written, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his every word. Now in the temple at that time, this marketplace would have been in the area called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is the place where the Jews could have witnessed to their pagan neighbors and told them about the true, the one true and living God. But instead, they devoted it to a marketplace where the Jews could exchange their foreign money and buy approved sacrifices. They would have gone through a currency exchange and paid a fee, and then they would have had to pay the temple tax, which the priests were making money on. And it was an ugly scene. There would have been animal poop in there, and they would have been yelling and arguing over the price of animals and whether this animal was good or not. I mean, it would have been chaotic. And if you call that the church of that day, it was polluted beyond pollution. And Jesus threw everybody and the animals out. And it says that he went about healing people and teaching. So that brings us to the end of that. And you might say, well, what, what do we take from this historical event? You know, Jesus was in a cool parade, and he was happy. And then he saw Jerusalem, and he wept at their rebellion. And then he went bananas in the temple. And then he started healing and teaching. And sermon over. And some of you, that's the best sermon I ever heard. But don't get your hopes up. It's not over. All right. So what we got to do when we read a passage like this is say, what does this passage speak to me in 2016? What does it say to me today? And as I studied and prepared this week, I just kept going back and forth like, where where do we want to land on this? But what really stuck out to me was how the Jews missed him. They missed his mission. And how much anguish this caused Jesus because he knew the ramifications of their rebellion. And it just caused him to weep. And we don't want to repeat history. We don't want Jesus to cry over us. I think we're starting to see, particularly in the American church, a division occurring. And it's not necessarily a bad one. People are starting to think deeply about, is this what Christianity is all about, what the church in the U.S. church is really pushing? We're starting to see books like Kyle Eidelman's Not a Fan really take hold. He preached just one of the best sermons I've ever heard, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, and then from that came his book and the Bible study that swept the nation. And in it, he was challenging people, are you going to be a fan or are you a follower? David Platt wrote a book named Radical, and it made it to the New York Times bestseller list. And it was a book about splitting our view of the American church and an American Jesus from the biblical Jesus and the biblical church. Wes Stafford writes about Platt. He said, he delivers a powerful picture of the church in America today that on key points stands in sharp contrast to what the Bible shows us about the person and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Platt challenges Christians to wake up, trade in false values rooted in the American dream, and embrace the notion that each of us is is blessed by God for a global purpose, to make Christ's glory known to all the nations. And then there's ministers who are really starting to speak out clearly on the national 
forefront where their voices are heard all over. And I'm kind of a Francis Chan junkie, and he's one of the ones that has been really clear about it. And Francis is bald, and he's got this really nice smile, and he puts his Bible up here, and he's like, I look in the scriptures, and, and I see what he's saying. And it's like, they're not what we're doing. And then he smiles, and he smacks his forehead, and then, you know, you're smiling back, and you just realize Francis Chan just punched you. <laughs> he hit you with the truth. And he's saying, hey, wake up. We're not getting it done. We're not there. We're not even close. Churches and people are asking, are we missing it? It referring to what Jesus envisioned the church to look like and his disciples to look like. People are starting to ask, is this it? Is church really you show up for an hour on Sunday mornings and then you're just a nice person through the rest of the week? They're looking at the scriptures and seeing that the American church and the American Jesus are not what's in the Bible. There's a growing awareness that consumerism has crept into our churches. Once saved, the people will um, evaluate their church experience by the preaching and the music, how it feeds them. Not necessarily about the mission of the church. And if anybody makes them mad, they're gone. This has even now been given a name called the consumer gospel. But when we dig into the scriptures and just honestly look at Jesus and the early church with unbiased lens, we really have got to ponder the question, are we missing him? Would he weep over us? And so this morning, I just want to quickly put on our glasses, our biblical glasses, and look closely at three interwoven essentials if we're going to see Jesus for who he is and his mission and not miss him, the first of these is we have to understand lordship and discipleship. When we come to Christ, one of the steps is this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We also know the Bible calls us to repent and that when we're baptized, our sins are washed away and we receive the indwelling of the Spirit. But right here it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Anyone who is a Christian has said that. And we must realize that taking Jesus as our Savior also goes hand in hand with taking him as our Lord. That means he owns everything we have and everything that we do. He's the master over our marriages, our singleness, our parenting, our jobs, our schooling, our extracurricular activities, all our relationships, our money, everything. We bask daily in his care and his unconditional love for us. We pray continually. And you see, disciples in Jesus' day understood this relationship of master, lord, and disciple, slave. They wanted to be just like their master. They saw Jesus as a Lord and they wanted to be his slave in a loving manner because they knew he was a loving Lord. And in the last 10 chapters, Luke detailed Jesus' teachings on the cost of being one of these disciples. Now, I want to throw out a question for you all to ponder. 
Bill Hall's a nationally recognized guy on, on discipleship, and he recently released a book called Conversion and Discipleship. You can't have one without the other. And he asked this question in this book, are Christians and disciples the same? Are Christians and disciples the same? The word Christian is used in the New Testament only three times, and Jesus never uses it. It is actually thought to be a derisive or almost a derogatory term put on by people outside of the faith. It meant you belong to Jesus. And I'm not saying that we don't use it. I'm just saying that's the history behind the word Christian. Now, the word disciple including both the, how it's used in the text in the New Testament and also in the headings that are put in by modern-day translators. The word disciple, though, or a derivative, is used 294 times. A disciple is a learner, a student of someone. It implies actions and obedience to the rabbi. The term Christian tends to be a label. Again, it was only used three times, and it was a derisive term. A Christian is expected to be something. The disciple is expected to do something. Jesus invited people to come and see, come and follow. And these are invitations that come with built-in expectations that he spilled out, spelled out in the last ten chapters. And it's safe to say that all true disciples are Christians, but there are those that are labeled Christians that are not disciples. Following the biblical model, we need to think of ourselves as disciples, be constant learners of the Lord, and to model him and to put everything we have under his control, under his lordship. So that's the first thing. Have a proper understanding of lordship and discipleship if we're not going to miss him. The second thing is we must understand his mission and why he came. Last week, Steve talked about Zacchaeus, and the Pharisees were murmuring, why is Jesus eating with this sinner? I mean, Zacchaeus was a traitor. He was a horrible guy. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. And then he states his mission, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.14, and as we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son, here's the mission, he has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. He writes again in John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came. His primary mission was to reconcile God and man. And you see, if we miss this, if we don't personalize this, internalize this mission, we'll be off the track at turn one. We have to personalize and internalize the great commission the mission that the church is committed to, the great commission. Jesus said to go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And we don't want to be like the Jews and miss Jesus' mission. 
I was thinking this week about how it's almost like a burning building. And if we're in the burning building and somebody comes in and says, hey, the building's on fire, get out, get out. And we go, oh. So we go out and we just get on the sidewalk and we just walk away. Pretty soon we find out we're in the park. Hey, look at the squirrels, the beautiful birds and flowers. And we just keep right on walking. We would never do that we would immediately start banging on doors and we would start yelling, get out, get out. We wouldn't leave that burning building until we were forced out. We want to f- save every single person that we could in there. But I can speak personally this in my own life. We have a tendency when we come to Christ to walk down the sidewalk. I got out of the burning, hells of, uh, burning fires of hell I'll just go on my merry way. Wherein what we should be doing is personalizing this mission and be going back and trying to do everything we possibly can to get everybody else out of the burning fires of hell. So first is lordship and discipleship. The second thing is we have to be about his mission and personalize it. And then the last thing is a conscious call to obedience. Paul writes in Romans 1.5, He is charged to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. Out of our faith, out of a saving faith comes obedience. And John writes in 1 John 2, 3, we know that he calls us to be um, distinctively different. In 1 John 2, 3 and 4, 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4 says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he says, what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. And too often, Christians live by their own rules, yet identify themselves as belonging, taking on the label of Christ, a Christian. I found a, a little paragraph or a sentence, a couple sentences uh, that I've included in your bulletin this week, but it just really struck me. It was from the Scottish writer George MacDonald, and he writes, Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it or once abstained because he said do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you to do. Lordship and discipleship, mission, obedience, three key interwoven essentials. They're all together, and we have to grasp them and embrace them if we want to make sure we see him and not miss him. And so my question to you, are you seeing him or are you missing him? Um. I really feel at times, just going to be an open book here, that, that, that I miss him greatly at times. There are days when I get up, I'm busy, I don't pray, and I don't read sometimes. It's horrible for a minister to admit to, but I get busy and I don't. And sometimes I just have bad days. I don't have good attitudes. and I'm not good in the relationships I'm in sometimes. I can do much better. At this point in my life, I haven't been a Christian for a long time, I pretty much know what the Gospels, I've read through them multiple times. I know what Jesus calls me to do. I know what Paul has taught me to do. But I get caught up in the day-to-day things and distracted 
and I react out of my own personal um, desires or habits instead of reacting the way Jesus calls me to, and I miss him. In fact, lastly, you know, last night I was just thinking, you know, who am I to preach a sermon? I feel like Paul who said I'm the worst of the sinners. But I think most ministers, Steve would say the same thing. You know, we feel really unworthy to preach. But that's a call God has put on our lives. And I guess the way we kind of look at it is we're kind of out along ahead of you guys going, hey, here's the instruction manual. We need to go this direction. We're not preaching at you. We're just preaching to teach and pull you along in the same journey that we're going on. So do you miss him in your day-to-day life? I ask you at the beginning to write down the three things that you wanted to see at DCC or your church. or And when you look at those three things, are any of those Things like, I want to see people come to know Jesus at DCC in 2016. Or, I want to give everything over to the Lord. I want him to be a complete Lord over everything. Or were they things like, I want Steve to preach on this topic, or Jordan to sing this song, or I want this program developed. Not that those things are bad. I'm not saying that but is the overall tone, and only you would know that. You might think, well, I didn't even have time to think. Would those have been what you would have put if you would have had more time? Is your number one goal that you wrote down this year to lead a friend to Jesus? Or is it that I will really commit everything I have to the Lord this year? That's my number. To grow in such a relationship with him that I've never been closer to him by the end of the year than I am. I mean, that, that, that's just what my whole goal this year is, to grow closer to Christ. So can I encourage you this week as we leave here to just really think deeply about where you're at with the Lord. Are you walking around with the label Christian? Or are you a disciple who has the label Christian? What do you need to do differently in your life? I, I doubt that there's one person in this room who can't say, hey, there's, there's this particular area that I really need to give to the Lord. We're going to offer a hymn of invitation right now where you can come and, and accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And so while the praise team is singing, there, there may be some of you who just want to recommit yourself to the Lord today. Maybe you're just like, I've been missing it. And it's a time for you to just come forward and just pray. Um, anybody, any brother or sister can come up around you and just pray with you. But maybe you are someone who has not accepted Christ yet as your personal Lord and Savior, and Jesus is weeping over you. When, you. when he was on the cross and God was unleashing his wrath on Jesus, he was paying the penalty for every sin you ever committed. It's already been paid for. And if you believe who he is, then you can take him as your personal Lord and Savior. It's the biggest decision that you will make on this side of death. And there's no reason to put it off. And maybe you're like, I don't really know if I'm ready. Then just come down for it. I'll talk to you about a decision. You don't need to make it today. But just don't put it off. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, 
forgive us when we wander far away from what you call us to be, when we want to get into a comfortable rut and be passive. You don't call your disciples to be passive. Uh, You call us to be very active, obedient listeners and doers and lovers of people, sharers of the gospel. And I just pray corporately as a body that this church will be energized, rejuvenated. I already sense it over just the last three or four months. I pray individually that there will be people in here with myself first that we will just really feel just a, a repentance and a passion to to just really get back to that point where we are a disciple, where we're crying out to be just like you, to do everything just like you want us to do, to live like you, to share your attitudes, to reflect your face, your attitudes, your behavior. Again, forgive us when we fail, but just give us the power through your Holy Spirit to do what you ask us to do. Give us a willing heart that goes right along with the power through the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and his mission. And uh, we love you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.